We are going to be reading from 2 Samuel this morning, 2 Samuel 1, that is page 245 if you are using these Bibles, 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 12. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Uh, There are, I'm sure Matt will agree with this, Um, there are mornings, there are messages that you approach maybe excited about, and then there are messages that you approach with some uh, trepidation or just a, a feeling of the, um, the weight of it. And that's how I'm approaching this morning. Um, we're going to, on this beautiful summer day, we're going to talk about grief. And uh, why do we grieve? How do we grieve? And if you're here this morning and you are in the midst of some kind of grief, um, I would just say... Uh, the only thing I want you to leave with this morning is that our God is, is tender-hearted, and he's close to those who are grieving. He's close to the broken-hearted. And so if you are grieving this morning and you hear, uh, you know, as I talk about how I think believers are asked to grieve, if you start to feel like guilt, like, oh, I don't think that's what I'm, that's, that's not what I want you to leave with. I want you to leave feeling a little bit more of the presence of Jesus than you felt when you came, maybe. That's my hope. Okay, and so I would invite your prayers for me. This is uh, these are some tough passages that we're going to look at. I think, um, at least in my own life, as I've read uh, the the Bible growing up, I think the the passages that we're going to look at this morning are two of the most heartbreaking, perhaps, in all of Scripture. Again, a nice uh, sunny summer uh, message for us. So uh, let's just quiet our hearts, as Matt often invites us to do, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. God, I believe that we can have confidence that you have uh, 
a tender heart towards those who are grieving. And I believe we can know that with confidence because uh, that's the way Jesus was. And so for anyone who is grieving in this room, would they feel um, the tender closeness of Jesus? And uh, for the rest of us who maybe are not in grief in this moment, um, I pray that we would be more like you and be willing to approach those who are mourning and to be close to them uh, so that they might feel um, your presence through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you may have heard the name Sam Harris. Uh, he is a fairly well-known atheist writer and thinker. He's a part of a group that some have called the New Atheists. And uh, a number of years ago, I think this was shortly after Hurricane Katrina, he was being interviewed and was, he was talking about the way that people grieve, the way that people mourn, specifically the way religious people tend to grieve, and sort of what he viewed the effect that we that our thinking about grief has on the world around us. So I just want to read to you. This won't be on the screen. I just want to read to you what he said in this interview. He said, uh, we don't teach people to grieve because we don't think it's possible. He's sort of talking about the effect, again, that religious people have had on society. We teach people in the place of grief this kind of fantasy life, that death is not a problem, that death doesn't exist, that you get everything you want after you die. And then we encourage people not to notice all the desolating evil that's going on in the world. The problem with religious mythology is that it dampens our compassion for other people. Because you have some sense that this is all a part of God's plan. No, no, no. That's what Harris said. And I want to ask us the question as we begin this morning. Do you think that that criticism, that critique, uh, is true? Don't, for a second, don't think about, you know, all religious people everywhere, religious, um, you know, the major world religions. Think about us, Church of the City here in Guelph. If you're a follower of Jesus, is that criticism true of you? Do we have our heads in the clouds ignoring the suffering of people around us because we believe that God's going to fix everything in the end so we don't really need to mourn or to grieve? Is that true of us? Because if it is, I think we're missing something huge something huge. We're going to just see a couple verses on the screen that I think show us uh, a different picture. Uh, you can put those first verses up for us, Missy. So Isaiah 53, 3, um, speaking about the Messiah that was to come, says, uh, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then the words of that Messiah, of Jesus himself, Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Later on in Romans, I don't think this is on the screen, but Paul encourages followers of Jesus, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And so it seems like followers of Jesus should be people who grieve well and who grieve often. So then we ask, why? You know, why should we be like that? We're going to look back into the life of David this morning and see two instances of mourning, of grief, that I think give us both things that we can imitate, things that we can model our lives after, and some, some lessons for us to learn from. But ultimately... 
These two moments in David's life will leave us wanting more, I think. And for that, we have to turn to Jesus, and we will. So the first moment that we're going to look at is what Sam just read for us from uh, the death of Saul and Jonathan. So catching up from where Matt left off last week uh, to the passage that Sam just read, um, in the intervening chapters there at the end of 1 Samuel, there's these sort of parallel storylines happening. So David and his men have gone over to the territory of the Philistines in order to sort of be free from Saul's constant hunting that he's been doing. And so eventually, David and his men are given this city in the territory of the Philistine Ziklag to kind of settle themselves in. Meanwhile, the Philistines go up in battle against the Israelites, okay? The Israelites still being led by Saul. And so these two armies are encamped against each other, and Saul inquires of the Lord what he should do. And he hears nothing. And so rather than wait, uh, Saul, as he, we often see him do in, uh, in his life, he, he begins to panic, and he seeks out a medium. And uh, the irony is that he had just spent, the, the text tells us he had just spent the previous few years rooting out um, mediums and fortune tellers from the land, but now he's just panicking. So he's, he says to somebody, find me like a fortune teller, I gotta ask what, what I should be doing. And so he asks this woman that he eventually finds to raise Samuel from the dead to ask him what he should do. And so Samuel gives Saul not, um, I think, the message that he was looking for. He tells him, hey, Saul, soon you and your sons are going to be on my side of the grave, not yours. And sure enough, this battle that Saul goes into is a complete disaster. The army retreats. The Israelite army goes on full-scale retreat. Saul's sons are killed, including Jonathan. And then Saul, just out of sheer panic and fear, uh, kills himself. And then, in the surrounding Israelite cities, they see how badly things are going, and so they just abandon whole cities, which are then occupied by the Philistines. And the final sort of uh, insult to this whole um, narrative, Saul and his son's bodies are taken by the Philistines and put on display in Beth Shan, one of the cities of the Philistines. So there's really not a redemptive moment for Saul here in these final days of his life. Meanwhile, you know, journeying back to that other storyline, David and his men are in Ziklag, and this is where we pick up from where, what Sam read to us. A messenger comes, an Amalekite, and he tells David of the death of Saul. And so then what is David's response? Look again at verse 11. David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So this is our, I think, our first uh, point for this morning, is that grief is an important and appropriate response to the pain and brokenness in our world. Whether it's affecting, whether that pain and brokenness is affecting a friend or an enemy. Grief is an, an important and appropriate response. There are, if we think about the situation that David is in here, right, there are things that need to be done, right? There's action that needs to be taken. Israel has just suffered this catastrophic defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Uh, the nation is without a king, without a leader. And David must know this is his time to ascend the throne. And yet he also must know that like, not everyone's going to agree with that, right? So there are, there's action that needs to be taken here. And yet, 
David takes a moment to grieve. Actually, quite a bit of time. It says he and his men just for the rest of that day are mourning together. Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on 2 Samuel says this, David grieves and all his company grieve with him. They grieve for Saul, for Jonathan, for the people of Yahweh, for the house of Israel. David has enough for which to grieve for a long time. He has lost his king. He has lost uh, one of his dearest friends. In the nation that he loves is in chaos. And so the appropriate response is to mourn. Despite all that we saw last week about the complicated nature of David and Saul's relationship, he recognizes there is a need to mourn and to grieve what's happened. Let's think about an example from, um, from present day, from uh, Canada, actually. I don't know if you've been following the story of these two uh, young men that were on the run for a number of weeks, Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski. Uh, late this week, I think Wednesday or Thursday or something, um, uh, the RCMP re- reported that they had found two bodies that they believed were of these two men. And as I was reading about this, um, you know, they were interviewing different uh, residents of some of these northern towns where these manhunts were going on, and they were expressing this sense of relief, naturally, that this manhunt was over, that their towns could go back to some sort of sense of normalcy, at least begin to work towards that, right? And then we also recognize that the families of these victims, these three people that, that were killed by these young men, they'll begin to be able to find... Uh, some closure over time now. Probably not the closure that they were looking for, but something. And yet also, friends, we have to grieve the fact that two boys, 18 and 19, got so twisted in on themselves that they would commit uh, three murders, people they had never met, and then that they would be so afraid of what they had done, of, of who they'd become, that rather than face the consequences of what they'd done, they would rather die cold and alone in the wilderness. That's something to be grieved, I think. Um, certainly we grieve for those families, the vi- families of victims, of the, the senseless violence that they've experienced or that, that their loved ones experienced. But we also grieve that these two boys just lost themselves somewhere along the way and did something that we can hardly imagine. Grief is the natural response uh, to the brokenness and pain in our world, whether it's affecting a friend or an enemy. Let's continue on in our text. So we'll be heading into verses that Sam had not read. If you have a Bible, look at verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, so he's speaking to that messenger who came, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He said, These are not easy passages, right? If they weren't heavy, they're they're getting heavy now. In any kingdom, though, let me ask you a question. In any kingdom or in any nation, killing the king or the head of state is considered what? It's treason. And so this messenger gets the punishment for his crime. And yet in the back of our minds, at least for some of us, we think, well, hang on a second. Like, 
Objection, right? David should have been grateful to this messenger. We just realized last week what David experienced at the hands of Saul. And so maybe we start to wonder, like, is all of this mourning that David does here, the killing of this messenger, is that just like political maneuvering or something, right? David sees, oh, this is my moment. I've got to like put on, put on sort of a good show here. Uh, this guy, you know, committed treason, so I have to execute him. And, and now I'm going to make it look like I'm sad about the death of Saul. We kind of are let, the cynical side of us wonders that, right? Is this just sort of maneuvering? And yet when we look back over... The, the last number of months and years of David's life, some of the things that we considered last week, we realize that David is being consistent with his actions from the start. And so this is our second point. Grieving with and for our enemies, which I believe we're called to do, can only happen within a broader context of loving our enemies. Grieving with and for our enemies can only happen within a broader context of loving them. See, all along the way, as we explored last week, David recognized the authority of Saul. Uh, I think we have these verses on the screen, but this is going back, 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 to 6. This is that moment where David, well, one of a couple of moments where David has the opportunity where he could have killed Saul, and instead he cuts off a corner of his robe as evidence, right? Like, I could have done more than this. But this is what the text says. After he goes back to his men, it says, This is 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 and 6. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. There's so many lords in there. He's talking about, God forbid that I should do this to my king, to Saul, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David... All he does is cut off the corner of his robe and he goes back and, and he's struck with guilt for what he's done. I, I shouldn't have done that. This is the king. This is God's chosen king over the people of Israel. I sh- I sh- that was wrong. And so David's integrity in this moment that we're looking at this morning demands that this messenger must be punished for his crime, for killing the king. And that the death of the Lord's anointed was a cause for grief. What the kingdom was experienced, what the king had, the fate that he had suffered was a reason for grief. And so I really don't think that David's men would have been sitting there, like scratching their heads, confused by what David was doing. I don't think they were. They knew that David expected to be king one day, yes. But they also knew the reverence that he had for Saul and the love that he had for Jonathan. The sentence for the Amalekite in that day of mourning, were consistent with David's character. Were consistent with loving his enemies, and so he could grieve for them as well. Let me give you an example from, from my life, albeit a much toned down example. You're like, oh boy. Oh. Um, I, I told you, I think I've told you before, that I was a, a tree planter for a couple of summers um, in northern Ontario. And uh, if you know anything about tree planting, you probably know you get paid per tree. So the more you plant, the more you get paid. And Uh, largely you self-report how many trees you planted that day, which that surprises a lot of people. Um, But there are a couple of ways that the company can uh, suss out if you're being dishonest in that. But you you give your own numbers at the end of the day, and then that uh, uh, determines how much you're paid. My first year of tree planting, uh, tree planting is a very competitive culture. 
Um, which makes sense, right? You, you need something to inspire you to roll out of bed and put on wet clothes every day. Um, so you've got to be a little bit competitive. And uh, my first year, I was part of a, you know, a big swath of rookies. But there was a few of us that were kind of all doing pretty well. And so um, as time went on in the season, we kind of started competing. We, we knew, like, okay, this few of us were the ones that are competing to be rookie of the year. If you follow basketball at all, you know, you know the sort of the, the fire that goes into that. Um, and so, uh, but there was a couple of times where we'd get back on the bus, and one of these guys that I was sort of neck and neck in competition with, I w- he would ask me, you know, what, what was your number today? How'd you do? And I'd give my number, and he, he would then give his number, and he would have beaten me by one bundle of trees, about 20 trees. And if you've planted about between three and 4,000 trees in a day, to be beaten by one bundle, 20 trees, I would be sitting there, and this happened a few different times. I'd sit there, and in my head I'm thinking, you are a liar. Like, I, I'm thinking that. You are lying to me. You just asked what my number was, and then you topped it by 20. You're a liar. Uh, and I started to get really angry about this. Because uh, then I'm thinking, like, you know, if he's lying about that, what else is he lying about? And... I remember at a certain point, I just had to simmer down for a second, and I had to say, they may be lying. I have no way of proving that. And even if I could, what, you know, like, what am I going to do about it? Like, and so I just said, you know what? I'm just going to choose to believe them. Because, uh, like, you know, we're stuck out here, uh, all the 20 of us, so, you know, if, there's no point in making, like, a mortal enemy. Uh, so I just said, I'm going to believe them and move on. And so that's what I did my very best to do. Um, lo and behold, a number of months later, uh, it came out that this person was actually stealing, was inflating their numbers, had been lying. Um, and uh, so naturally, you know, um, I stood up and said, Aha! No, no just kidding. Um, no, uh, tree planting camps, because they're so tight-knit, such tight-knit spots, you're just stuck out in the middle of nowhere, when these things happen, and they sometimes do, usually the person just gets out of there as quickly as they can. They get fired, but everybody finds out in a matter of like minutes, and then they just pack their stuff and leave as quickly as possible. And that's what this person was, person was doing. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Uh, that's what this person was doing. Uh, but as they were hopping in their car, I just ran over. Um, and I, the, one of those moments where you like clearly feel um, like the Holy Spirit giving you words that you don't have, um, because I was mad on the inside, but I, I went over and I just said, hey, I forgive you. Like, I, th- I think I know you fairly well, and I know this was a mistake, and I forgive you, and if you want to talk, like, I'm, I'm up for it. And uh, sure enough, they reached out um, over Facebook in the coming days, and we were able to just talk a little bit. Um, and he was saying, like, I'm realizing a lot of things about myself through this all coming out, um, just unhealthy habits. And But I don't think, friends, that I would have been able to have that conversation if I had gone with my gut early on. It's just been like, you're a liar, you're lying to me, you're lying to everybody else. Um, I think because God gave me the strength to just say, you know what, I'm going to just take what you're saying at face value, Um, I'm going to try and build a friendship here, that only because of that was I then in the midst of this person, this huge mistake, uh, um, this theft uh, being revealed, was I able to journey with them in that moment. And so if we don't make a habit of loving uh, our enemies, we can't grieve with them in moments of suffering. Let's continue on. Um, David then pens this uh, lamentation, this song 
for Saul, for Jonathan, for Israel. We're going to look at some of it quickly. Um, if you have a Bible, Second Samuel uh, verse 17, it says, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, and here's where David begins, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned back, and the sword of Saul returned empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You could finish that at some point. We're going to keep going for the sake of time. But two things before we move on from this moment in, in David's life. Two final points to be made about grief, I think. Look down at chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. Grieving, uh, as with any other emotion, must have, I believe, boundaries placed around it. We see David here take time to grieve and to mourn the loss of uh, his king, the loss of a dear friend. Um, but then he recognizes there's things to be done. I, I, this, our, our nation needs a king. And so he moves on. And if you are in, uh, you may balk at that, you know, putting boundaries around grief. Um, because grief is such a, um, a potent emotion. And yet I think we can recognize this, that the, the truth of this when it comes to other emotions, right? And this is hard in our world today where we're told that, like, if you feel something, it's, it's true. Um, and, you know, trust it and go with it. Dallas Willard, though, uh, reminds us, and I, I have loved this statement ever since I read it, emotions make wonderful messengers but terrible masters. Um, they can teach us things, they can inform us of things, but they will rule us if we let them. And that's certainly true of grief. And so I'm not suggesting as Harris, going back to where we started, I'm not suggesting uh, as um, uh, Harris accuses us of, of ignoring our grief or of like delegitimizing it. You know, oh, like this is all going to be fine, right? Like, uh, you know, we're all going to be in heaven one day and you won't even be thinking about this. So like buck up. That's not what I'm suggesting. I already said grief is an important response to pain and suffering in our world. I'm simply suggesting that there are there ought to be boundaries placed around it. And we may not know exactly what those are until we're in that moment, I don't think. And I think that's okay. Think about uh, Job. Uh, if you've spent any time in the scriptures, you know that Job is sort of this, uh, maybe the, the, the prime example of someone who experienced uh, unimaginable suffering, Job and Jesus, unimaginable suffering and, and how to process that grief and that pain. And at one point in Job's narrative, his wife says to him, hey, you should, now's the moment, you should probably just curse God now and die. Like, just curse him and we'll die, okay? And Job won't do it. 
he recognizes that there's a, there's a line there, in the, even in the intensity of his grief, his darkest moment, that he won't do that, and he doesn't. And so I believe that even in our, the pain of our grief, there needs to be uh, boundaries. And last is that David composes this song about Saul and Jonathan and then commands that it be recorded and taught to the nation. And so our last point before we move on here is that if we practice grieving uh, well, I believe that our grief can have a redemptive effect on the people around us. Now, don't hear me saying that this is like the point of, of suffering. You know, wow, I've just experienced, you know, the loss of a loved one, so now I need to teach the people around me, like, in the midst of this. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if we can learn how to grieve well, God is big enough to be able to use that in a redemptive way for the people around us. See, Israel, this nation, needed to be uh, able to mourn. They had just lost a king. They had suffered this catastrophic defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Saul's sons had been killed. They needed to be able to mourn. And they needed to be, able to, they needed to be given the words to grieve with. And David did that for them. He writes this song. And he says, we need to grieve. Write this song down. Teach it. And I think we need to learn this too, friends. I don't think, uh, if I'm honest, that we're good at grieving. Going back to Walter Bergman, here's what he says. We've nearly lost our capacity for such grief. We are characteristically, this like really hit me square in the eyes. We're characteristically so busy with power, so bent on continuity, so mesmerized by our ideologies of control, that we will not entertain a hiatus in our control of life to allow for such grief. Such grief does for a moment require a relinquishment of control. David doesn't hesitate to enact such relinquishment. He's okay to leave the throne empty for a time in order to mourn. And in so doing, he's able to allow the the nation of Israel to mourn as well. And so now, we ask the question, so then, is David this perfect, shining example of how to grieve, how to grieve well, uh, for friends and for enemies for the rest of his life? And you probably already know the answer to this question. It's, it's a no. Um, and so we're going to turn to another moment of grief in David's life. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. What I believe one of the most like, poignant, um, hard passages in all of Scripture to read. So, some context, because we're stip- uh, skipping quite a bit forward in David's life. We're actually leapfrogging over some things that we'll come back to in the last couple of weeks of our series. So I won't steal, steal too much here from you, Nick. Um, but David has ascended to the throne. Uh, David has uh, an affair with a married woman and has her husband killed. Um, and then a prophet, in the wake of that, uh, Nathan, visits David and rebukes him for what he's done. And he gives this uh, ominous warning to David of what's going to come. This is 2 Samuel 12, 11. You don't have to turn there. If you're at 18, just stay there. But Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Um, a, scary, a scary warning that David receives. And in the very next chapter, chapter 13, we begin to see rifts open up in David's family. And uh, a number of characters come on the scene in the coming chapters, one of whom is Absalom. Um, 
And just to give you the summary of uh, Absalom's part in David's life, he's the third son of David. Um, and uh, he first becomes known for killing his half-brother, Amnon, um, for raping his sister. Um, and so uh, we think, you know, as we're reading that story, if you've ever read it, you think, wow, there, there's, that was hard, but was, was and what Absalom did in some way, was that right? Like he brought some form of justice and we're scratching our heads and then we remember it's even more complicated and muddy by the fact that by Absalom committing this murder of his half-brother, he puts himself next in line for David's crown. Um, and so we're just left like with our heads spinning, wondering what is happening. But because of what Absalom does, because of this murder of his half-brother, he flees Jerusalem. And it's only uh, sometime later, actually when one of David's commanders comes and kind of through this riddle, strange way, uh, convinces David to letting Absalom back into his household, into the city of Jerusalem, and David sort of begrudgingly does it. So Absalom comes back, but over the next two years... After all this has happened, David just avoids Absalom entirely. Doesn't interact with him at all. Um, and when he finally does, when they finally do interact, there's no uh, conversation about what Absalom has done. There's no like, conversation or, around, okay, what, what are we going to do about this? There's no reconciliation between David and Absalom. But Absalom's back in Jerusalem, so he starts building an army and at the same time building his political base in Israel. And then this all comes to a fruition in 2 Samuel 15 when he stages a rebellion against his dad. And David is forced to flee Jerusalem at that point. And eventually things culminate in a battle between the forces that Absalom has mustered and uh, those who stayed with David. And David tells his commanders, hey, if you find my son, deal gently with him. And yet... Joab, one of David's commanders, hears that Absalom, uh, you should go back and read this whole story. It's, it's wild, the turn, twists and turns. Absalom, one of the things he's known for is his hair, and he gets caught by his hair in a tree. Joab hears about this and goes and he kills Absalom. He, he runs him through with a spear, despite what David has commanded. And so we pick up this story just as a messenger delivers news of the battle to David, who wasn't there, wasn't present at the battle. So if you have a Bible, we're reading from 2 Samuel 18, starting at verse 31. And behold, the Cushite, this is a messenger, um, another foreign messenger, as just a coincidence would have it. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Not the most sensitive uh, lead-in that the Cushite takes here. The king, that's David, said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. He knows what the Cushite is uh, saying. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, 
Would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? You can understand why, if you've never read this before, some of the hardest, (laughs) one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to read, I think. But one thing, because of the summary, that you may not catch, but if you read it, if you read Absalom's whole story, there are these little... um, uh, little bits and pieces put into Absalom's story that are meant to remind us of Saul. The narrator of these of first, first and Second Samuel parallels them in some interesting ways. Both Absalom and Saul before him are described as being beautiful without a blemish on them. They're both kind of men of the people. They really sort of uh, uh, get, get the people's opinion and support behind them. Contrasted to David, who was God's choice for the throne uh, in Israel. And in the death of Absalom, we see David take uh, virtually the exact opposite approach to grief that he took with Saul and Jonathan. His grief is unrestrained, and it's actually really toxic for the people around him. Let me, let me explain. We'll contrast, uh, we'll use our previous points. First, we said grief is an important and appropriate response to the pain and brokenness in our world whether it's affecting a friend or an enemy. Well, as with the death of Saul and Jonathan, where there was these two characters, one where we might consider an enemy and one we consider a friend, here in Absalom, it's both. And David certainly does grieve. Um, We just read it. Um, But we say grieving with and for our enemies can only happen within a broader context of loving our enemies. So let's just think back to David's relationship with his son, Absalom. He really lacked any kind of integrity in his relationship with Absalom. First of all, he did nothing uh, about uh, the rape of his daughter Tamar. David was passive in that whole account. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands and murders his half-brother Amnon. And then David does nothing about that. Absalom flees and David just lets him go. He only allows Absalom back into Jerusalem at the request of one of his commanders, as I said. And then he avoids him for two years. And when they finally do meet, there's no reconciliation. There's no talk of what's happened. David is completely passive in the whole story with his son Absalom. And so he has not loved this son well. And so this grief is is even darker and more complicated. Next, we said that grieving, as with any other emotion, must have boundaries placed around it. Likely, the guilt and shame of what David uh, has, has his relationship with Absalom, the full weight of it hits him in this moment when the Cushite says and comes, you know, let all enemies of the king experience what that young man experienced. And David, who has been calling Absalom through this whole narrative, the young man Absalom, it hits him, that's my son, that's my son. And he publicly and visibly breaks down. And rather than returning to his, to his palace, he goes to the room above the gate, where everybody can see. And he uh, starts wailing for the city to hear. And so our last point, if we practice these other aspects of grieving well, our grief can have a redemptive effect on those around us. David's grief causes confusion and hurt and pain for the people of Israel. The soldiers returning to the city after the battle pass under that gate where David is saying, I wish it were, had, could have gone differently. I wish the battle had gone a different way. They're returning from battle hearing David crying that out above the gate. Mothers, right, in the city who've lost uh, sons in this battle hear David saying, my son, my son. And everybody is probably thinking, 
my son, my son, this is the son that you banished for years. And when he finally came back to Jerusalem, you ignored him. And now my son, you know, gave his life in this battle, and you're wishing that it could have gone another way. David's grief just causes hurt and pain and division in the people. If, we, if you look at uh, 2 Samuel 19, verses 2 to 3, it says, The victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people, listen to this, stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The soldiers came back as though they had abandoned the battle, when actually they had won a victory for David. But they're so embarrassed by what's going on, they're feeling this shame, like, you know, imagine that feeling. Like, what should we have done, David? What did you want us to do? And so finally, Joab, that commander who actually uh, was the one who killed Absalom, has to return and go into David and forcibly say, you need, to, you need to go, you need to snap out of this. And we think, like, how is he supposed to snap out of it? He's grieving the death of his son. But Joab says, if you don't, your entire people will abandon you. you we just, you know... Uh, figured out this one insurrection, it's going to happen all over again if you don't stop this. And so in this heartbreaking passage, we see David somehow uh, close up his grief and go out and encourage his men. And so David's grief over Absalom is the tragic conclusion to years of passivity and poor choices by David. And yet, and hear me on this, in the very next breath, we have compassion for David. Because he's lost a son. And we have all, we have all made terrible mistakes that have caused us and others great grief and pain, haven't we? We've all made mistakes that have brought grief upon us. And so then we are left asking ourselves the question, is there a king who has the tenderness to help us grieve the way that we need to? Is there a king righteous enough to not create messes of their own leading to grief and harm for us? Or better yet, is there a king powerful enough to make all our causes for grief to come undone? Oh man, would that there were a king like that. Well, if you spend any time in the scriptures, you know that another king in the line of David would come, as Absalom was. This king would come and would also get hung from a tree, as Absalom was. He would get run through with a spear, as Absalom was. And his body would also be thrown into a pit and covered with a stone. This king in the line of David is named Jesus. And this king would not be in rebellion against his father. But he and his father would be in perfect unity as Jesus took our grief upon himself. And through the death of Jesus, the Father was actually calling out to us, saying, My son, my daughter, return to me. I'm making a way back. And the son, that king in the line of David, through his death is calling out to us, Cast your burdens and your grief on me. I gladly take them on myself. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 says it this way, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood, brokenness and grief and pain. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came and experienced grief and suffering with us and actually died for us so that that fear of death that brings so much grief and pain to our world could be taken away. And so, friends, um, there are, I think, lessons that can be learned from uh, David's life about grieving, how to grieve um, for our friends uh, and for our enemies. Uh, But ultimately, ultimately we need to look to Jesus, who takes our grief upon himself um, so that we can be freed from it. This is a hard passage. It's a really hard passage. Um, This uh, theologian, Jen Wilkin, she says, this is a book that breaks your heart. It's not a book with a happy ending. We want the Bible to tell us what we want to hear, and it will, but it'll make us pass through every stage of grief that we need to to get us there. Um, Because maybe for some, uh, you know, it takes um, experiencing horrendous grief to know that we need someone to carry that with us, and Jesus will. Um, And may we be people who are close to the grieving and who carry that with them. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I'm reminded of uh, the moment where you went to uh, the tomb of your friend, Lazarus, and uh, though you would raise him from the dead uh, in a matter of minutes, you wept. Um, I, think, I think we see there your heart, and though you have the power and you will make our grief come undone, if we put our faith and trust in you, you still see the pain that... Um, we experience. Some of it our own doing and and some of it not. Um, And so, uh, Jesus, for those in this room who are grieving, um, would they know that you uh, weep with them? And uh, for the rest of us, um, would we be close to the brokenhearted? Would we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Um, Because that's that's what our Heavenly Father does. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.